ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Go directly to jail. But what's it good for? Why the centre-right is challenging the morality of prison. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West on RN and ABC Listen, and that story is soon. First, though, Israel's domestic intelligence agency has warned that if the military offensive in Gaza goes into the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, it could become a so-called holy war. Ramadan begins on the 10th of March, and that could ignite regional conflict. Now, back in 2012, during the statehood negotiations, Dr Victor Katan of Nottingham University was a legal advisor to the Palestinian Authority. He's written widely on radical movements in the Middle East. Victor, welcome. So what is the risk? I think the danger here particularly concerns the access for Arab-Israeli citizens of Israel, that's of Palestinian origin uh, in Israel, having access to the Muslim holy shrines particularly the Al-Haram al-Sharif or the Temple Mount uh, where the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of Rock are located because there's a fear that restrictions will be imposed on those individuals from entering the mosque to pray during this holy month. Isn't there also, though, Victor, a worry surely that it would feed this idea that Israel and Hamas are somehow engaged in some sort of holy war and that kind of rhetoric does not lend itself to peacemaking? Yes, of course. I mean, Hamas uses this kind of language. But I should also say that in addition to religion, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is also, it's also a nationalist symbol as well. You also see it in posters, you know, when the PLO Executive Committee meets, they'll have a poster of the Dome of the Rock. Um, and also even Palestinian Christians see it as a nationalist symbol, the symbol of Jerusalem, if you like. But of course, it does play up. And Hamas has been involved in, you know, exhorting people to protest the Israeli occupation from the mosque during Friday prayers and, and other previous occasions where, especially where Jewish holidays and, and Muslim holidays coincide or clash, there have tended to be disturbances there, especially also with the rise of the Israeli far-right uh, settler groups who are increasingly encroaching on the compound, not just in terms of archaeological digs or restricting access, but also seeking to pray inside the complex where the mosques are located, the al-Haram, the al-Sharif, which is in fact a violation of the status quo, because what happened back in 1967 during the occupation, when the Israeli uh, authorities took control of the city, they agreed that they would maintain the previous status quo, which meant no prayer for Jews inside the compound, only Mm. in the Western Wall. And what's happened is that some of these more extreme settler groups are praying not just in the Western Wall, but they're praying in other sections of the wall. And some of them also seek to enter, or they have entered the mosque to pray there, which accompanied by armed guards, which was created friction with, with the Muslim worshippers. Yeah, well, praying as well. Yeah, well, Victor, we know that uh, back in 2000, it was the decision by the uh, the now late Prime Minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon. He wasn't Prime Minister at the time. He was the leader of the opposition. But I think it was his decision to visit uh, the Temple Mount, as he said, uh, that was one of the one of the sparks, one of the sparks uh, for five years of conflict. And I think there's a fear here that in addition to the terrible scenes of destruction and death we see in the Gaza Strip, there in fact is also killings occurring in the West Bank 
especially with settler groups. And there's a fear, I'd imagine, expressed by King Abdullah and the Israeli security services that this could even escalate were there to be restrictions or further disturbances in Jerusalem at the mosque. And that, moreover, this could spread to Israeli Arabs inside Israel, which would be, you know, a nightmare scenario. You've got the West Bank, Jerusalem, then Jerusalem, the Gaza and other parts of Israel, not to mention what's happening in the north with Hezbollah and potential friction with Egypt in the south. That may get worse, depending on what happens if, if Israel decides to press ahead with its uh, an attack on Rafah, for instance. Yeah, you mentioned inflaming uh, the passions of Palestinian citizens of Israel who, to date, have not been involved in any sort of uh, resistance or solidarity action or whatever you might call it with the Palestinians in Gaza. But how could this idea of a holy war also inflame the wider region? Because that's got to be a concern. Yes, that's true. I mean, um, so Jordan has a special role in the the Muslim holy shrines since 1924. So they see themselves as a custodian and that's recognized in the uh, peace treaty with Israel and other agreements with the Palestinian Authority. But you see, in addition to Jordan, other, there are other actors who claim to have a have an interest in events in Jerusalem. So Saudi Arabia is one of them. If you know your history, you know the Hashemite kings from Jordan were originally in Saudi Arabia. So there's always been a bit of a contest there over who has a the special role in Jerusalem, the other the holy mosques being Mecca and Medina, which are in Saudi, in the Hejaz in Saudi Arabia. But then there's, of course, Iran, which claims to speak for Shia, the global Shia population, who also express an interest in the holy city, Jerusalem, Al-Aqsa being the farthest mosque before the prophets uh, ascended to heaven. And then Turkey, taking on the mantle of the former Ottoman Empire, the Ottomans, when they were sovereign in Jerusalem, also played an important role, Jerusalem being a site of pilgrimage, uh, and then the caravans would continue from Damascus, Jerusalem, then on to Mecca and Medina. And I should also mention beyond Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Iran, and also there's Egypt, there's also North India, Pakistan. During the British colonial period, there were very strong links between the, the All India Muslim League and Palestinian nationalists, and one of the leaders of the All India Muslim League, I think it's Shaukat Ali, is actually buried near Al-Aqsa Mosque. So there's, there's long been this interest. It goes back to the Caliphate movement, which was when the Caliphate was abolished by Ataturk. So there are these broader interests in, in the holy shrines in Jerusalem. Well, indeed, very broad. Uh, now, you've written that when this conflict ends, you believe that recognition of a Palestinian state will best serve the cause of peace. I struggle to see the likelihood, am I alone in thinking that this is unlikely, given the uh, statements coming out of Jerusalem and, frankly, the ambivalence out of Washington? It's interesting because um, a report I read back in January indicated that Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, had asked his advisers in the State Department to look at options on recognising, actually not just recognising a Palestinian state, but allowing that state to become a member of the United Nations. In other words, Washington would not exercise its veto. I'm not sure about the veracity of these reports. It was an Israeli news channel, so I assume it it was true. And I know for a fact that the UK, David Cameron, has come out uh, publicly supporting recognition of a Palestinian state before negotiations with Israel come to. So he's not making it conditional on negotiations with Israel. I think that's quite significant coming from, you know, two states that have traditionally not supported the creation of a Palestinian state prior to peace agreement. 
with Israel. And of course, although Netanyahu is opposed to this, he can't prevent third states from recognizing Palestine. That's within the discretion of every state. Already 140 states recognize Palestine. And if the remaining 50 or so want to do so, that's something they can do. And the government of Spain and Ireland and a few other European countries have come out saying that they are actually prepared to recognize Palestine, even if the European Union cannot reach a common position on it. Mm. So that's quite strongly worded comment. So I do think there's some movement here, but perhaps I would imagine those who are pushing for this particular angle, who want the recognition to take place, are probably trying to link it to ending the conflict in Gaza. And I suspect that's why we haven't seen any concrete movement yet. Mm. But once it happens, it's immediate, right? As soon as they issue a statement, the foreign ministries make that statement and it yeah happens from that moment so yeah, i think some countries see it as a as a carrot if you like that they're a card that they have not decided to play yet but they want to play it they're looking for a reason to do so professor victor katan is uh, with the law school at the university of nottingham victor was also a legal advisor to the palestinian authority and uh, he's written multiple books we'll put a link to his work and his article at our website thanks for joining us on the program victor it's been great talking to you and this is the religion and ethics report where you're hearing about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world <music> More than four in ten students who attend Catholic schools are not Catholic. In fact, many aren't even Christian. That's just one of the findings from a major study involving 1,200 parishes across the country. It reveals huge change in Australian Catholicism. And let's just say this isn't your grandmother's church anymore. Dr Trudy Dantas is director of the National Centre for Pastoral Research. Catholic parishes are diverse and and looking at the spread of parishes across the country, you can see waves of immigration particularly have contributed to that diversity. Initially, for example, we had waves of immigrants coming in from Italy and the UK. And more recently, we've got a large number of immigrants coming not only from the Asian countries like India and, and China and, and Vietnam, but also from places like Colombia and Brazil and Iraq. So that's contributed to the diversity. And although it's a declining population, and you can say that and you can see that in the trends over time, it continues nevertheless to be a very vibrant population because of that diversity. Well, that ethnic diversity really leaps out at you when you look at the data because, yes, the old Catholic heartlands for Australia of, of Ireland and Italy, for example, they are way overwhelmed now uh, by the number of Catholics from the Philippines for example. I think that's the biggest single country for Australian Catholics. Well, absolutely. I mean, between the years of 2016 to 2021, the top five countries of overseas-born Catholics didn't change. So they continue to be the Philippines, the Italy, UK, India, and New Zealand. However, definitely the numbers coming in from the Philippines are, are tremendous. And even if you look at the recent arrivals, so those who have arrived between the years of 2018 to 2021, you can see that 14% of the population of Filipino Catholics have arrived in that time. So they continue to arrive and 
they continue to make their presence felt in, in parishes everywhere. Mm. 85,000 just on the last count of uh, Australian Catholics come from the Middle East, 72,000 from India, 52,000 from Vietnam. Trudy, if I go into a Catholic church on a Sunday morning, particularly in some parts of Western Sydney and suburban Melbourne, it's going to be very full. How many languages might I hear over the course of a day? Oh, I'm not sure you could hear anywhere from, I don't know, 40, 50 languages, possibly. Wow. There's one parish, I think, in Western Sydney, though, that symbolises this trend of multicultural Catholicism. Which parish is that? In Fairfield Parish, for example, you can see that the number of languages spoken at home by Catholics in in the community People who speak Italian, Maltese, Spanish, Polish, Vietnamese, Arabic, Assyrian and Chaldean languages. You've got uh, percentage that are really high. So among all the Catholics from that country, about 87 to 90 percent of speakers would speak those languages at home. One of the other trends, one of the many trends that this research uncovers isn't just about the ethnic diversity. Catholicism also in Australia seems to be becoming quite middle class these days. How has the occupational profile of Catholics changed? We're seeing in the last five years that more and more Catholics seem to be uh, professionally employed. If you look at the change in, say, the numbers who are now managers and professionals, looking at the change from 2011 to 2021, you see more and more Catholics age 15 and over are in those areas of work and fewer and fewer Catholics are in occupations such as clerical and administrative workers and sales and missionary operators, so on and so forth. Now, a large percentage of that would be due to the skilled migration that's come in. And again, that's contributed by the diversity of people coming into the country, people who have a degree, who come here and take up jobs that are professional jobs and office jobs rather than the, the trades jobs that we would normally have seen before. Yeah, I'm just looking at the data here. 30 38% of, uh, of Catholics are professionals and managers versus 28% who are either technicians, tradesmen, labourers or machine operators. So a very big change there. What does the modern Catholic family look like today? Most of our Catholic families would be uh, a family where, you know, there's a husband and wife, they're married and they've got children. But you also have a growing number of one-parent families, and you can see that in the trends over time from 1996 to 2021. The percentage has increased a little bit, but also another big change is the number of couples of mixed religion. So that has changed over time as well. In 1996, that was 52.9%, and now in 2021, that's risen to 58.1%, which is a huge number. There's also an increase in the trend of de facto couples as well that's increased as well. Yeah, I did see 20% of uh, people who identify as Catholic uh, uh, say they're living in de facto relationships, 10% divorced. What does this mean for the pastoral message of the church? We are seeing a greater outreach than to divorced and separated couples as well because they will form a large proportion of people within the community. 
So again, it's pastoral leaders and bishops and parish priests and other leaders in the community have to think about what are the needs of such families, you know, how are the children, some of them would be one parent families, how are they coping with the needs of children that may be in the families, what are their needs for, you know, sacraments and so on and so forth, and how do we pastorally minister to them? So these are increasingly new questions that we will need to ask, and some sort of ministries or, or pastoral programs will need to be formed for them or prepared for them. Hmm. On the question of children, one piece of data really leapt out at me. 41% of students, 41% of students who attend Catholic high schools are not Catholic. Do we know why this is? Well, there are a large number of Catholic schools in the community, and I think Catholic education has helped educate so many communities, whether it's Catholics or not. And you can see that they just don't cater to the Catholics within the parish community, but they definitely are there to address the needs of the larger, wider community as well. Mm. Again, though, does this change the approach of the church to education? The fact that so many of its students are not only not Catholic, but I suspect uh, there's quite a a lot of students of of other non-Christian religions. Absolutely. And again, the focus of Catholic schools is on education and it's educating everyone, no matter where they come from and what religion they might profess or whether they profess a religion at all. So I think Catholic schools are aware of this greater mission that they are called to being the face of church in the local community and uh, being there to form young people in values. Trudy Dantas of the National Centre for Pastoral Research. You're with me, Andrew West. Australia spends $6 billion a year on prisons. It costs, on average, $150,000 a year to keep someone in jail. But we still have one of the highest rates of reoffending in the world. So what is prison good for? Peter Curti is a researcher at their centre-right group, the Centre for Independent Studies. He's been rethinking prison for economic and for moral reasons. What we want to do by asking the question, what is prison good for, is to have a closer look at the role of prison, to assess the way in which prison is used and to ask whether it's being used in the best way. We cannot live without prison and there certainly are some individuals who need to be in prison and some of those people need to be there for a very long time. But the problem with prison that we identified and other researchers have long identified this too is that as rates of serious crime in Australia have declined, particularly over the last 30 years, the rate rate of homicide in particular, the rates of incarceration have gone up over the same period. So we're ending up, we've got less serious crime in the sense of crime like homicide, but we're getting more people in prison. Now, very often it's a simple calculation that people make. They think, oh, well, crime rates are falling because we're locking more people up and therefore the answer to crime is to lock up prisoners. And what our research uncovered was the fact that this is actually not the case at all and that people are being locked up for different reasons and that the rate of incarceration does not actually have an impact on the rates of crime. Well, let's try to answer the the title question, what is prison good for? What is it good for? 
Well, prison is good for a number of things. The first role that it plays, and it's a significant role, is retribution. There is a very strong sense, a just sense, and a moral sense that people who commit serious crimes, they need to pay a penalty, and that penalty is the deprivation of liberty. And it's appropriate that society exacts a degree of retribution for people who have done wrong when it's appropriate for them to be in prison. The second role is rehabilitation because we can't just lock people up and throw away the key. What we need to do, and corrective services need to accomplish this, is to prepare prisoners for re-entry to society when they are released. And this is a particularly important role and a very challenging role because one of the reasons prison rates have been rising in Australia over the last 30 years is that rates of recidivism are going up. Yeah, I mean, according to your report, it's very high in Australia, 53%. That raises the opposite question, what's prison bad for, Peter? What have you found? One of the paradoxes that we uncovered was that rates of recidivism are high because one of the factors is that prison sentences are too short. That sounds a very odd thing to say, but the thing is that if somebody goes to prison for a short period of time, they are not able to avail themselves of rehabilitation programs that are available, and they're not always available. But when they are available, they're not able to avail themselves of them. And so they go to prison, experience extraordinary amounts of disruption in their lives, in their private lives, family lives, uh, disruption from work, and that sense of disruption that comes from a disconnection from society and there is no program that helps them to re-engage, to re-enter society. Recidivism is high because often people simply fall through the cracks, they fail to reintegrate in society, commit crime and they return to prison. One answer to that recidivism problem is something that I found especially fascinating in the report. What's this idea of moral education as an antidote to crime? It's a question that goes to the heart of the philosophy of punishment in a way. And why do we punish? What is the, the moral basis of punishment? And moral education is one of the theories in the philosophy of punishment, which is about teaching people and encouraging people who have done wrong to reevaluate their moral position and their, their moral conduct and to be prepared when they re-enter society to live their lives, as it were, by a different moral code. It's not possible to draw hard and fast distinctions between the roles of retribution, rehabilitation, moral education. They do fuse to an extent, and so the boundaries are clear for the purposes of discussion. But even the experience of having one's liberty deprived could be a, a spur to moral re-evaluation, which is a part of moral education. It's not just aimed, though, at the individual offender. Isn't the idea of moral education something that society as a whole takes on, that we are inculcated with the attitude that there are things that, if we transgress, we'll end up in jail? We ought to train ourselves not to transgress, as opposed to always relying on the heavy hand of the state. Well, that's true, and one of the roles that prison is often thought to play is that of deterrence and in fact it seems that prison doesn't deter people from committing crime. One is far more likely to be deterred from committing crime if the risk of getting caught is high which comes back to the role of policing and the, uh, the efficiency of, of policing. Prison as such is not 
much of a deterrent, and yet it can play a part, as you've indicated, in, in the moral re-education, the moral education, not just of prisoners but of citizens. Part of the moral education, I think, also, though, for the wider community, involves thinking again about what prison is good for, because if we just think that somebody commits a crime and what we need to do, the way to respond is to lock them up and deprive them of their liberty and impose this tremendous disruption in their lives, then we ourselves are taking a rather narrow and not so much immoral but morally questionable approach to the role of prison. Peter, not only are you a social researcher, you're also trained in law, but I think you're principally a Christian minister. How should a Christian approach the question of punishment? I think it's a very good and a very important question because as Christians we are reminded by the teachings of the New Testament by the teachings of Jesus in the gospel that we have a part to play, a role to play in the society in which we live and St Paul in particular was very strong on this and therefore we need to abide by the law and we need to discharge our duties responsibly as citizens of the state in which we live. At the same time we live as it were as citizens of, of another realm, of another kingdom and that we bring those principles and values to bear on our life as well. Now, to come to the the nub of your question, I think that when Christians think about punishment, they need to think about, first of all, justice. That justice is not a term that Christians should shy away from when we speak about a just God and we speak about the justice of God. But justice must be tempered with mercy and with compassion. And those who have done wrong, those who are being punished by the state, need to be treated with compassion and mercy and we need to remember at all times that they are human beings created in the image of God as we are. The ministry of Christian clergy in prisons testifies to that because the chaplain knows what a prisoner has done and why they're there and that they have done wrong and they certainly are not there to say that they shouldn't be in prison at all but by bringing to bear the qualities of mercy and compassion can help a prisoner to understand more about the circumstances that have led them to be there and perhaps to help them see the error of their ways. So I think Christians must not sidestep the need for sometimes very severe punishment and stern punishment and the judgment of the court but at the same time we must never lose sight of the fact that the men and women and young people who are locked away in prison are created the image of God and they are loved every bit as much as we are. The paradox or the very difficult thing though for Christian involved in criminal justice for example is that there are crimes that today society deems are unforgivable but that really clashes with the Christian idea that there is no sin for which we can't be redeemed. I think in many ways there's never been a more important time for us to, as Christians, to speak to and witness to the importance of repentance Mm. and forgiveness. Again, I think that's part of a just and compassionate response to individual wrongdoing. Repentance for the individual does also require amendment of life. Mm. And an individual who makes no attempt to amend his or her life 
in a way, it doesn't forfeit forgiveness, but it's not entirely authentic. Look, just coming back to this report, uh, finally, there is an interesting meeting, though, of the religious and the secular, because you um, cite the distinguished uh, Australian criminologist, uh, Don Wedderburn. He says one of the best things you can do to prevent people going to jail is to block the opportunity to commit crime. This rather sounds like the old uh, religious injunction of the church, don't attempt an occasion of sin. Well, yes, but I think Wedderburn was really talking about blocking opportunities by means of effective policing. If you lead somebody to believe that they commit a crime, they are likely to be caught. That is blocking an opportunity. It's always thoughtful to speak with you, uh, Peter Curti from the Centre for Independent Studies. Thanks for being on the program again. Thank you very much, Andrew. Great pleasure. And there's a link to that report when you go to the Religion and Ethics Report homepage. And that is the show for now. Find us at ABC Listen, where I'd love you to follow us. Thanks to Hong Jang and our audio panel beater, Roy Huberman. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.